I uh, went to a church for a while uh, in my early 20s where every time they would take the offering, everyone would cheer. It was kind of weird, okay? We're going to teach on sin. Why don't we cheer? (laughs) Uh, It's not exactly the same thing at all. But we are going through this series called Compelled to Replicate. Compelled to Replicate is a series that I think out of a lot of ministry that I've had to be uh, a part of, I've noticed the absolute need for people to be developed on how to develop other people because disciples disciple. So I want to encourage you to take notes. But what we're going to be walking through today has to do with accountability. And when we look at accountability in Scripture, it tends to do two things. So I'm going to give you my sermon, the points right now. You ready? Two things. Accountability helps us to have people that are watching us uh, to point us towards not sinning, but more importantly, pursuing Christ. Not sinning and pursuing Christ. Now, I don't want you to think that you can clean yourself up and come to God and be like, look, I did more good than bad, because you don't. But the hope is that in relationship, spurring one another on, having relationship with one another amongst discipleship relationships and in community, in the family of gods, that we'd help one another pursue Christ. And that would actually help us become more and more holy, not based on our work, but based on God's work through us. And so we're going through this series. Last week, we talked and taught on the Great Commission as we went through the first tenet of discipleship that we gave you, which is teaching. And the hope is that with teaching, the idea is not just information transfer, but it's applying that information with the right motives, which leads to transformation. This week, we'll be working through this tenet, accountability, and it comes from the idea of giving an account. Jesus And Paul, the apostle who writes much of the New Testament, speak of giving an account. We will all stand before God at some point. Even if you don't believe in him, you'll still have to stand before him. And when I looked up the Webster Dictionary definition for accountability, here's what it gave me. You ready? The condition of being accountable. Thanks, Google. But really, it means to be responsible for the things that you say and do. But in accountability, we want, as a body of believers, as people that are pursuing Jesus Christ, we want to be practicing and communicating what we believe with others watching. So I want to take you to somewhat of a word picture. You're welcome, John Colburn. Imagine you're running alongside the beach. Now, for some of you, when you hear running alongside the beach, that might make you a little nervous because you're like, I can't run. Okay, that's fine. Imagine you have a perfect body, or whenever you imagined your perfect body, and you're running along the beach, and you see someone that you're attracted to playing volleyball. All right, oh, you're single in this example as well. <laughs> I don't want, pastor said, anyway. But imagine you're running along the beach, and you see someone, and you're single, and you're attracted to this person, and they start to check you out. All right, I'm just going to let that sit there for a second. And as you're running, you notice that they're they're looking at you. Can we just be real up in here? Aren't we going to start to run different if we know they're looking at us? Aren't we going to start to flex as we're running? Aren't we just going to have the perfect strut, right? This is what we're, don't lie, you are. 
What's the principle? We do better when we know someone's watching us. We do better when we know someone's watching us. And I don't want us to treat God like we treat Santa. He knows when you've been good or bad. He watches you when you're asleep. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God's church actually being in one another's lives in such a way that we can spur one another on towards pursuing Christ. So we need to look out for the best interest of each other spiritually and spur one another on. And the need for community, the need for the church of Jesus Christ, of the living God, the need to have people who are not just like us. Look around. People aren't just like you in here. We need people that aren't just like us rubbing off and against us because that's part of the sanctification process of being God's church, his bride. Now, I don't like making emphatic statements because I always get an email, well, you said this, but this, right? Like, I get those in junk mail or I send them to Mike. But here's, here's the emphatic statement I'm going to make today. I have never, ever met anyone who is growing spiritually by themselves. Never seen anyone grow spiritually by themselves. And a piece of discipleship is to have someone walking with you that you can be real with and that they can be real with you. Everyone has blind spots. Guess what? You can't see them, <laughs> hence the name. We all have blind spots. And we have blind spots in all sorts of areas, but the one that is most prevalent and detrimental to our spiritual growth, to our Christ-likeness, to our sanctification process is unconfessed and unrepented sin. Sin slows down our spiritual progression. Did you know that? We've said it before. And if you're new or you come here a lot and you, bring your, you brought your friend, you're like, wait, why is the pastor talking about sin? My goal is not for any of us to clean one another up. My goal is to help us understand that God has a plan for his church to encourage one another towards holiness, to pursue Christ, to look more like him. So before we get into Galatians 6, which Ruth read, we're going to start in 1 John chapter 1. Pages are in your bulletin if you're using one of the black Bibles in the pews, but if you have your own Bible, it's probably not the same page. Just going to tell you that now. You're like, why, is it, why am I in Psalms? 1 John chapter 1. That'd be a really large print Bible if you were in Psalms at 1130. Yeah, anyway. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 8. Now, John is the disciple whom Jesus loves. And we've said this before because we've been going through the book called John, written by the same John. And why did he call himself the disciple whom Jesus loves? My belief is that he got his identity fully from the fact that Christ loved him. And that ought to be us as we're pursuing Jesus. And he wrote this letter to the early church, and it was circulated amongst the church of these new believers that were now following and chasing after Jesus and believing what God did through Jesus Christ. Here's what it says, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, I don't know how you see sin. The Hebrew definition of a sin is to miss the mark. So there's the perfect mark, there's a target, don't think over on Scott and El Camino, but there's a target and you miss it. And that's what it means to sin, but I would even go as far to say to not pursue God's ideal, because God gave us his ideal. He gave us not rules, but what could give life, 
which was the law, but none of us could keep it, and he sent his son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So John makes this pretty broad statement to his hearers. He basically says we all sin. All y'all, y'all, y'all. So if we claim to not do that, then we are passively being led astray from the truth, is what the language points to. So knowing the problem, knowing that we have a problem, knowing the problem within the problem, which isn't just sin, but that we don't pay attention to what a large deal our sin actually is. I stole that from either Mike or Ruth, but that's really good. So what I want to do is I want to take you to Old Testament to the Psalms. And I want to read you some words. I'm not going to give you any context, but the context is really important. But I'm going to give you the context after we read the words. In Psalm chapter 51, verses 4 through 5, it'll be on the screen. The psalmist writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely, the psalmist says, I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. These are some pretty lamenting words. They're made even more powerful when we realize that God spoke through David to say them. David, the shepherd boy. David, the guy that took out Goliath. David, the one that had to be underneath Saul, even though he was the anointed one and would eventually be king. David, the the psalmist, who writes this psalm in the context of a little transgression regarding Uriah and Bathsheba, where uh, my translation, I guess, David sees Bathsheba on top of a roof taking a bath. Awkward and sees her, and he's attracted to her, and then he finds out that she is married to Uriah. And then, because he has sway, he points people in the, in the army, the army that David's a part of, and he gets them to get Uriah to be on the front lines, and Uriah dies. And then David takes Bathsheba and makes her his wife. This is scandalous Jerry Springer stuff. But the thing is that David, who writes this psalm, who was a murderer, who was an adulterer, David, the shepherd boy who would become king, who was the same bloodline of Jesus, mind you, the word of God says that David was a man after God's own heart. How can that be? How can such a varsity sinner, we're JV, guys. How can such a varsity sinner be a man after God's own heart? David had a heart of repentance caused by his reverence of God. He understood that he was in need of mercy, and so he called on the Lord. He was not without sin. He was not without excuse, and so we turn to the Lord for mercy. This is something that you and I must realize, that you and I, each of us, we sin against God. We trespass. We do more than we think that we do. It's not only the transgression that separates us from God. 
It's the unwillingness to repent that keeps us separate from his holiness. Now, when I say repent, often when I define it, I say to uh, be heartbroken over your sin and to be in love with the son. But in a more simplistic sense, it means to course correct. It means to change direction. It means to turn around. And you and I, we sin against God, and we do it more than we think, and because we're unwilling to repent, we are separate from God's holiness. But John goes on in verse 9, and he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say we are. It says he is. God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so John continues, if we confess our sin, if we acknowledge that we do sin, you're on a pretty level playing field up in here. Everyone is level at the foot of the cross because we've all sinned against God. And if you're willing to ask for mercy and the grace to flee, he is faithful. Not just faithful to forgive you of your sin, but to give you the power to flee from it. But don't base your forgiveness on your faithfulness but his. Don't base your forgiveness, because I know a lot of us say, well, I prayed a prayer, I was in church, I've been doing these things that I know I ought to do, but God doesn't feel close. Can we just be, has anyone ever said this? Liars, you've all said it. God doesn't feel close, and so don't get it twisted. Our forgiveness is not based on our faithfulness, it's based on his. So he's with us, leading us, giving us opportunity to repent, giving us opportunity to be encouraged to pursue him more. This is how we become more like Jesus. God purifying us, transforming us, and to not hold our trespasses that we do against him, against us. So we must be willing to confess. But here's the thing. To whom do we confess? Within the context of this passage, I believe John is specifically talking about confessing to God, okay? And some of us are like, heck yeah, I'll confess to God, I just don't want to tell any of y'all, right? I get it. But that doesn't mean that we cannot and should not confess our sin to one another. So break up into groups. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> some of you believe me. <laughs> uh, this passage is talking about confessing our sin to God, repenting. But in God's church, and I want you to hear this. This is something I don't feel that I emphasized enough first service. In God's church, in his people, those who have said, yes, I'm committed to Jesus and I'm committed to be a part of his bride, his church, we ought to have the relationship to confess sin to one another. Okay, now don't hear that the pastor believes in vampires. I don't. But y'all know Bram Stoker's uh, vampire, Dracula, and vampires, in theory, if you put them into the light, they die. The same is true of our sin. If we put it into the light, it dies. Here's the principle. If you can confess your sin, if you can repent of your sin, and, and I, I'm the worst of all of you, just so you know, based on firsthand information. But if you can confess your sin to God, it should no longer have dominion over you. And it doesn't have to, if it doesn't have dominion over you, then it can be confessed to others that you're in relationship to. 
because it is no longer what you identify yourself by. The problem is that many think that confessing it to someone is all that is, is expected. Well, I told somebody. That was good enough, right? So instead of getting real with God first in prayer, confession, we confess to someone else and we think that it's enough. There's no real repentance. There's no real course correction. We assume that all we have to do is acknowledge it in front of another person But you know how I know that that often doesn't have the power to destroy the specific sin? Because there are far too many of us that confess over and over again, but we never repent. And so we never stop doing the exact same sin against God. You notice that? Maybe for other people, not for you. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says it this way, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase, or translation I'm used to, abound? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He's speaking of those that are included in Christ. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, like as a symbol of his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, the word of God says. When you were baptized, if you were baptized, you were identifying with Christ's death and his resurrection. And that is the power that makes you a new creation. We are not more powerful than our sin nature. Guys, I need you to hear that. You, by yourself, are not more powerful than your sin nature, but God is. Oh, that he is. So what what does this have to do with accountability at all? I thought this was a discipleship training. They were going to tell stories and jokes and make fun of Mike. No, yes, a little. If we're a disciple of Christ and we're included in God's church, we ought to be accountable to one another and encourage one another towards repentance to God. I've failed today. I've messed up today. I've had to go back to God, and I'm going to have to tell my accountability partner, Mike, what I've done. And we need one another as the bride of Christ. As the church of the living God, we are all members of a body that work best together. If, if the symbol is being part of a body and you stub your toe, doesn't that affect the rest of your body? Doesn't it? Just think about this. You stub your toe, you're not good everywhere else. You're like, oh, right? And it's just a toe. So we need one another. The members of the body work best together, and so accountability is for the good of each member and the good of the greater body. So back to Galatians 6, as Ruth read. Paul the apostle writes this letter to the church in Galatia, who Galatia had this group of people who had become Christians but had not given up the practices that they had done in the Jewish tradition, which for many of them they were trying to justify themselves by. So Paul is speaking into this community and the need to understand that the old covenant has been completed in Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we do away with it, but he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. 
So chapter 6, verse 1, brothers and sisters, Paul says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, capital S, you have been redeemed by the Spirit of God, should restore that person gently. If you have one of our Bibles or you're writing in your own Bible, underline gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Paul is speaking to believers. He's speaking to Christians, brothers and sisters, he says, and he is admonishing them. Do you remember what admonish means from last week? Warn. Warning them that they should attempt to restore gently a person who is caught in sin, but to also pay attention that they don't get trapped in the quicksand, which, quicksand, which is sin through temptation. Paul knew through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and through his own experience that people who are caught in sin, that sin can be a cancer for them, and check it, imagine if cancer was contagious, and that's what sin can be like. Paul knew this, but there's this active application that he gives the church. If we are to engage in restoration of someone, helping them through repenting and turning from sin, then they, we, as followers of Jesus, Sealed by the Holy Spirit ought to do it gently. Because when we come in hot, it creates a wall. And it even creates an excuse for that person not to listen. But you hear this and you go, okay, so if I see someone, you know, uh, reading a Twilight book, should I, you know, go to them? <laughs> I just never like Twilight. I have no, a lot of vampires in this sermon. Anyway. <laughs> No, this has more to do with, are you in a relationship with them? And if you're in a relationship with them, and I'm in a relationship with you, and we know each other, we ought to be able to encourage one another towards Christ. We ought to be able to say, hey, I'm seeing something. Can we talk about this? Verse 2, he says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. To carry one another's burdens means to carry a load that's substantial, that's heavy. Here's the thing. There are people in this community hurting right now because of lost relatives, of lost relationships, of lost friends, of lost situations where there was once a moment where things were one way and now all of a sudden they're different and we need time to heal. And we as the church of Jesus Christ ought to carry the burdens together. To do this for one another fulfills the law of Christ. To love others as yourself, hear me, to care for those who were made in God's image to, extent, to the extent that we care for ourselves. Did you know that all of us have this self-preservation thing going on? And so to the habit of self-preservation that we have for others, we ought to do, or for self-preservation that we have for ourselves, we ought to do for others. That is what the law of Christ looks like when lived out. Verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Now, underline deceive themselves. Last week, we talked about James chapter 1, verse 22. If you hear the word of God and don't put it into practice, you have deceived yourself. And who likes math in this room? A few of you? Okay, yeah. Wow, lots of people. That was like seven. I can count math. Um, <laughs> so the thing with math or not math, sorry, I went in the wrong direction. The thing with deceiving yourself, the term that James used was it meant to miscalculate. It meant you miscalculated your faith when James said it. 
So what Paul is saying, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. They misunderstand what this walk in this Christian life and what it means to be under Christ means. So this is not based on how good you are or how well you do things. This is a commentary on the human condition that no one is good, not even one, except for God alone. And so if we act as if we are good, if we act as if we exalt ourselves, if we are personally deceiving ourselves and we are moving farther and farther from the truth. I keep picking on Mike, but to be totally honest, I can't be more thankful for my friend and Mike. He's been a a pastor, an elder in my life for quite some time. He's been an accountability partner, and I've said this before, he's someone that I theologically spar with. And we wrestle with text and we talk about theology. But here's the thing about Mike. He doesn't ever speak highly of himself. And sometimes it's annoying because I kind of want him to. But he never does. In fact, sometimes he doesn't do it when I think he ought to. But instead, he speaks of Christ and God's goodness. And he doesn't feel the need to exalt himself or get attention, but he wants the exaltation and all of the attention to be placed on Christ and him crucified and resurrected. This has helped me, I think, stop talking much about myself, I think. I don't know. Michael will tell me later. It stopped me from attempting to show my credentials everywhere I go, in every context that I'm in. Because that is not what God has for his people. Impressing others doesn't impress God. You need to hear that. If you are identified by Christ, you do not feel, you don't have to have the need to impress others because it doesn't impress God. And if we think too highly of ourselves, we have no room to think highly of Christ in comparison. And because I know how to toot my own horn, and I'm really good at it, I'm better at it than all of you. See? 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 I'm honestly really sensitive when other people do it as well. We don't need fans to be our accountability partners, people that are fans of ours, but that's not what we need. We need people that are going to be real with us. We need followers of Jesus to spur us on. That's what the church is about. Verse 4. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. You know what's funny about that? It's kind of the term that he's using is, you know, test your own actions and then you'll realize that you shouldn't have any pride in yourself because what you're doing either isn't good or you're doing it for the wrong reasons. So he says, test to approve something after examination. Examine your own hearts and the things that you do. Paul is saying that we must test our own actions rather than attempting to compare ourselves to someone else. Here's the thing. You will always find someone worse than you. Everyone compares themselves to Hitler when they ought to compare themselves to Jesus and then repent. You'll always find someone worse than you, and to be totally honest, if you look long enough, you'll always find someone better than you. Unless you're Michael Jordan. Just going to throw that out there. Yeah, LeBron, no, anyway. Uh, Verse 5, sorry, commentary. Verse 5, for each one should carry their own load. 
This load is different than the word in verse 2 that was burdens, but they're similar. This has more to do with our continued responsibility for the day-to-day obligations that we have. Hear me, we have young people in here. If you're, actually, no, I'm not going to, because someone will raise their hand, they're not really young, then we're going to have to tell them, no, you're not. All right. If we say we're going to do something, do it. That's a really good witness for Jesus Christ, because the bar set really low. Verse 6, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Now, I want you to know a little bit how I teach. There are times when we come to a verse, and it's not necessarily a 50-50, but there's kind of this, we look at a verse, and people have two different interpretations. And both interpretations can be biblically uh, defined and explained. And so when we come to a verse like this where there's two different interpretations and both of them are biblical and both can have a good argument for them, I'm probably going to teach both if I believe in both and I think both are biblical. So this verse probably has two meanings. This could refer to the compensation of giving to missionaries, pastors, those in ministry, those who invest in you, they do deserve some type of financial investment in return for their investment in you. Because God does provide, but guess who God provides through? His church. But with context in mind, it also could refer to the reporting back of the difference that's being made as someone invests in you. And reporting back and telling them, here's the difference that it's made. Here's the difference that when you rebuked me, I've changed. Because when restoration of sin happens for anyone, there's usually an eternal benefit. There's usually an opportunity for spiritual growth. And this is why I believe Jesus gave instruction on how to go about restoring someone who is in sin in the church, in his church. Now, we're going to come to this passage in Matthew 18. Some of you know what Matthew 18 is. Some of you have never seen it played out. Some of you have been experienced it played out, and it hurt, and it didn't happen the way it ought to, and I get it. And I don't want to just bring up a bunch of baggage, but as God's church, I want us to actually listen to what God has to say when it comes to this. Now, hear me. When we're going to someone who we think is in sin, we better have a relationship with them. I'm not sending emails to people I see online who I've never met going, hey, you did this wrong. And some of you laugh because you know people who do. So Matthew 18, Jesus, red letter, says this, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins. So he starts with, if another Christ follower sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Oh, this is so brilliant. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Well, no, duh, Jesus. But yeah, go to them individually. This is known as Matthew 18, to restore someone. This, these are Jesus' words, and he's telling his people how to be his church. If your brother or sister is in sin, you go to them. And if we submit to God's word, we should address sin like this in God's church. This is where most issues within the church ought to be settled. Just right here. doesn't get any farther than this. This is the practice of actually caring enough for others in the body of Christ to point out something that maybe they don't see. This isn't judging. 
This is loving someone and their spiritual progression enough to talk to them about it. And caring for those that might be influenced by the person who is caught up in sin. So I don't want any legalists, honestly, I don't want any legalists anywhere, but like, <clears throat> I don't want anyone hearing this and going, well, Tim, you accidentally said this word instead of this word, so I need to have a meeting with you. I ain't got time for those meetings, and neither do you, I hope. I'm talking about someone that you're in relationship with, you do day in, day out stuff with. You notice that they're kind of getting off path, and you go and you talk to them. You go and have a conversation with them. This shouldn't be a big deal. But here's what happens when one person goes to another person. It's not public. It's not that big a deal. But here's where it goes off the rails. What happens is a lot of us go and talk to a lot of people before we go talk to that person. You know who we should talk to first? God. MC Hammer said it best. We got to pray just to make it today before you do Matthew 18. I added that part. We ought to pray. Here's the thing. I receive a lot of criticism because I stand before you. I open God's word. I receive a lot of rebukes, if I'm honest. I'm told I'm doing stuff wrong pretty often because I'm on display as a teacher of the Bible, so it comes with the territory, even though a lot of the times it has more to do with preference and uncommunicated expectations, but that's another sermon. I'll give that to you later. Yay. And even though I don't love to be told that I'm wrong, does anyone like to be told they're wrong? Thank you, sir. May I have another? No. It's no fun. Even though I don't love to be told that I'm wrong or especially being told I'm sinning, I have blind spots. And even if the person is just cray-cray, even if the person is just out of this world when they come, even if they do it wrong in the way that they do it, I have to trust that maybe there's a hint of truth in it. So I shouldn't just, eh, I'm not going to listen. I should at least pay attention to what someone else had enough guts, I guess, to come and tell me. But what do we tend to do? We have this thought, and instead of going to God, we go to other people, and we basically start to create popular opinion against someone before we start Matthew 18. So it's not just about going to them, but it's being cautious about who you, how you speak to them and who you speak it to beforehand, and have you gone to the Lord? But if you are, here's the point, if you are in a discipleship relationship, you literally will have someone who's watching your life and invests in you. And you're hopefully giving permission to them, to that person to speak into your life, even when it isn't comfortable because it usually isn't. But let's say that you or they don't want to listen. Or they or you don't want to address the situation. What then? Verse 16. But if they will not listen, Jesus says, take one or two others along. These aren't random people. These are bystanders that may be affected by this. So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is really where it can go off the rails. Because now that you are inviting others into this, the person may need to realize that they really do have to course correct because there are multiple people that are speaking into this. That they have to repent. And they can't keep doing what they're doing in the context that they're doing. And this is where people who are defensive can really feel cornered and on an island, me included. It becomes an us and them for those of us who refuse to repent. 
So then what does Jesus say? Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, don't worry about it. Uh, No, it doesn't say that for those on podcast. If they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Remember, not the steeple, but the people. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, don't worry about it. No. Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So now if someone is still unwilling to listen and change their attitude towards this, you then bring them before the church. Hey, Mike, would you come up? No, I'm just kidding. Don't. No, no. It sounds extreme because here's the truth. A lot of you are visiting. You haven't committed to being a part of this church. You aren't in discipleship relationships. You're not really sure. And after this sermon, you're like, no, I'm good. Listen. It sounds extreme, but here's the thing. Sin is extreme. Because sin is why Jesus went to the cross. Not his, ours. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become right before God. And sin creates this chasm between us and God. Sin is a cancer. And if not addressed, if not removed, it will spread throughout the body, both spiritually and literally. So Jesus' third step, put them before the church or tell it to the church. Now, I don't think if someone's caught in the sin, we ought to invite them up. All right, well, have you done anything wrong this week? That is not what we're doing here. (laughs) Wow, that would be a long service. (laughs) I don't think that's practical or helpful, but we ought to put it in front of church leadership. That's why we're installing elders in two weeks. It's Texas horns, I guess. Why? So that we have the chance for people to repent. Because they have people that they respect and know them and love them and are saying, hey, I think this is somewhere where you've gotten off track. And we want to restore you gently. We want to point you towards truth. And if restoration through repentance is still unattainable, Jesus, the one we sing praises to, loving and gracious, Jesus says that at this point, you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. What does that mean? As someone who is not in fellowship with God and, and his people. Ouch. Why? Because to keep them around will influence others to either be like them or will train others that God's word really isn't that important because we're unwilling to deal with conflict in the church. So why do I bring this up? Here's the truth. I've done this wrong. I've been on both sides. I've been called out on this, and I've had to be a part of doing the Matthew 18 for someone else, and I've done it wrong. Sometimes it's worked, even when I did it wrong, because God is good. But I don't always do it well. And I've also seen many, 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 many emphasis on many people refuse repentance because they believe that they did nothing wrong. Can I just be real? I'm going to get away from the pulpit, the music stand. You ready? Okay. This process sucks. Can I say that? I just did. Here's why it sucks. Because most people aren't ready to have to deal with their sin. But that doesn't mean we don't listen to what God has to say. And if we're going to grow more into his likeness, that doesn't mean we're going to grow more into being humanitarians. It means we're going to look more like Jesus, which means we obey what he says. 
Good news is, maybe for the first time ever in church history, I'm not teaching this because we have someone that needs to be brought up here. (laughs) That's usually the reason this gets taught. Now, the reason I'm teaching this, the reason that this is included in a discipleship training is because if you're going to be a disciple, it means that you belong to God's family. It means that you're a part of God's bride, that you're a part of his church. I didn't say go to church, even though you ought to worship together, but I said that you belong to God's church as disciples. So the writer of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The writer of Hebrews encourages us to think through how we can spur one another on towards what? Good deeds, good works. Now, I don't believe that the good works that the Bible refers to in a context like this are the humanitarian work that we do to better society. Now, before I lose you, there's nothing wrong with doing humanitarian work at all. But that's just not what the context of this text is saying. The good works, biblically, are those that are done in submission and obedience to God and his word. That's what a biblical good work looks like. So accountability isn't just to help us sin less, but it exists to help us pursue Christ more. That's why I share all of that. That's why we jumped into Matthew 18. That's why we walk through these things. It's not just to help you sin less. It's to help you pursue Christ more. So why do we have restoration? So you'll pursue Christ more. Why do we have community groups? So you'll pursue Christ more. Why do we disciple? Because we want to collectively pursue Christ more. And as we do, we look more and more like him. Hallelujah to the glory of his name. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In Ephesians, it says, We were created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, to obey God's commands. And in turn, we get to look more and more like Christ. The writer of Hebrews continues in verse 25 of chapter 10. And he tells us to consider how we may spur one another on, but how? He says, 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more you can see the day approaching. This final part of this verse has to do with the fact that Christ is coming back. So let me, let me be real about this. Here's my end time theology. Jesus is coming back. Hallelujah. You want to know when? I don't know. I do know one thing about his coming, though. He's closer to today to coming back than he's ever been. The writer of Hebrews says, meeting together corporately, yes, but also in smaller contexts as well, across a table from one another, on a couch together, meeting together and having connectedness to see how one another are doing. Crazy. We just started community groups. You can sign up as you leave. You can be connected in this context to be held accountable and to pursue Christ together and to be spurred on to do the good deeds which God prepared in advance for you to do. I was meeting with someone in our community this week, 
and I asked them to name someone in the community. I said, anyone, just name someone randomly, all right? Yell out a name. Who would you say? Go, go, yell out names. Okay, okay. Thomas, okay. Yep, yep. Okay, cool. All right, here was the name. Cat. They mentioned cat. Some of you are like, I don't know who cat is. Cat's here, and I'm not going to look at her. They mentioned cat. So I got to use this example. Cat invests in our children's ministry. She pours into the kids, generally first service. She pours into these kids. She spends time with the children's director. She is totally a huge help with everything happening in children's ministry. Cat's being invested in by Carrie Colburn. They meet pretty consistently. They study the Bible together. They spur one another on. Carrie gets invested in by my wife, Erin, the children's director. And they meet and they spur one another on. They open the Bible together and they encourage one another. Cat's dating Keith. Say hi, Keith. He's in the back. I'll, I'll wave to him. Keith's in the back. He's helping invest in tech and he's helping make it so we can have a church that can communicate things to people, not just in the building, but maybe when you miss church through video and podcasts and things like that. Keith's being invested in by John Colburn. John is married to Carrie. John is going to be installed as an elder in two weeks. I have the absolute honor of discipling John, which I think I learn more than he does in our time. Moises and Janet spur Kat and Keith on as they meet together and hang out and do life together. Now, I don't say any of that to exalt Kat or Keith or John or Carrie or Moises and Janet. Here's why I bring that up. Because for maybe the first time in my life, most people named in a church, I can say, here are the connections that people have. And to be totally honest, that's the dream. We want people in relationship with one another. We don't want anyone falling through the cracks. You're going to. You're going to feel, hey, no one talked to me this week, or I don't really have any relationships, or I don't. Keep trying. If you want to grow here. Get involved in a community group. This isn't the only place you can grow, but that's what we're going to focus on. We want people to be in relationship with one another. So the method to the madness of community groups, the hope is not to just, it doesn't exist just so we'll feel more connected, even though that's a huge benefit. And step one, but it's so accountability and discipleship would be more actively sought out and even accessible because of relationships. Accountability is not just for fleeing or confessing sin. It is for pursuing Christ. So not giving up meeting together. So please, if you're interested in pursuing Christ, if you're interested in getting connected, connect with a community group, connect with a Bible study, connect with someone that you meet here at the church and ask them out to coffee or a meal. Y'all eat, right? Like, it's not like no one's ate this week. You miss so many opportunities to connect with someone while you ate. So, we're going to continue this series of developing us as disciple makers who are disciples because disciples disciple. Last week we taught, taught about teaching. This week we've talked about accountability. Next, we're going to talk about life on life. What does it really mean to have people around us that we can learn and grow and do life with that we can learn from because more is caught than taught? 